Well, as we come now to our final session, I want to ask you to join me as we go before the throne of grace. Father, we have prayed several times in this conference for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We are mindful of our need to be taught by the Spirit of truth, by the great teacher himself, the one who has authored pages of Scripture. We ask that you would cause us to have not only understanding as to what you mean by what you say in your Word, but that your Holy Spirit would also bring home these truths to our own hearts. Father, we pray that you would challenge us, comfort us, encourage us, edify us, sanctify us, conform us yet more and more unto the image of Christ. And specifically, we ask that you would make us yet further into the men that you would have us to be, that we would be good servants of Christ Jesus. Father, I thank you for these men, for their commitment to your word, to your son, to your kingdom, to your church. And I pray that you would use this time that we spend together in ways that will further enable them to serve faithfully where you have assigned them. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, I invite you to take God's Word and turn with me yet again to the first pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy. And in these times together, we're looking in chapter 4, and we want to continue our thoughts as we have been working through this text of Scripture. The theme for our conference, again, is drawn from a letter that Robert Murray McShane wrote to a missionary named Daniel Edwards as he was preparing to go to Germany to serve on the mission field. And as he was preparing to leave, McShane encouraged him regarding the priority of his own spiritual life, uh, the primacy of his own walk with the Lord. And in, that, in the course of this letter, he says, as you are learning German to serve on the mission field in Germany, do not neglect your own heart. And it is in that context that he says a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. And that is to say he would be a minister who would be mightily used and greatly effective in the service of God as he emphasized the necessity of being pure and holy before God. Surely this is an emphasis that that I need and that each and every one of us need as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ that the reality of what we preach is clearly seen in our own lives. In other words, don't export it if it doesn't work at home. And there must be the reality of the pursuit of holiness in our lives. And so as we've been looking at this section of Scripture, uh, we have been noting several features. And this morning we began looking in the middle of, of verse 7. And I want to begin now by, by reading the passage, beginning Let's begin in verse 6 to take in the the entirety of, of these verses. And pointing out these things to the brethren, referring back to verses 1 through 5, uh, this note of warning that he must sound concerning the apostasy that would last throughout the age. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. 
For bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. We began this morning looking at verse 7, the middle of verse 7, and we noted first the command issued as he says, discipline yourself. And we noted that in the spiritual life, as we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, it necessitates that there be the discipline of our lives. This includes the discipline of our time in the Word of God, the discipline of our time in prayer, the discipline of the way that we devote ourselves to the ordinary means of grace. And this is drawn from an athletic metaphor in which an athlete would go into a gym and over many months and, and several years train hard in order to build up his spiritual muscles so that he, or, or his physical muscles, so that he would be enabled to compete in the games when the time of the great race would come. It would not be enough that he simply be in the race, but that he must run in such a way that he would win, and in order for that to occur, he must discipline himself and train himself. And the parallel in the spiritual life is abundantly clear that we as men of God especially, as well as every believer, must devote themselves to the Word of God and to prayer and to those means of grace and the Lord's Supper and remembering our baptism, that we would be built up in our most holy faith. We noted that this is an imperative. This is not an option for any man. To fail to discipline ourselves is to live in flagrant disobedience to the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is something that we ourselves must do. No one else can can discipline us in this, in this manner. He says, discipline yourself. And then we saw the character pursued for the purpose of godliness. We noted this morning that this word for godliness is a word that means reverence and awe within the innermost being of a man's soul, that it is this high regard for God, this taking God seriously, this God-centered focus in one's life is the very goal of our discipline. That is why it requires the Word of God and prayer as the chief means by which we would arrive at this godliness. And as we continue to look now tonight, as we come to verse 8, I want you to know the comparison made. As we come to verse 8 now, that Paul might solidify this truth in Timothy's mind, he gives this illustration. Paul is a master teacher, and Paul understands that to paint the picture on the canvas of Timothy's mind is to communicate effectively what he wants Timothy to see regarding advancement in his own spiritual life and growth. This illustration is convincing. This illustration is compelling as he now makes it more clear these parallels between bodily discipline and spiritual discipline. So he says in verse 8, in making this comparison, 
He says, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. He acknowledges that the athlete who goes into the gymnasium and who devotes himself to work out and to train and to have his body in peak condition so that he may compete in the race with maximum effectiveness, he acknowledges that such bodily discipline, that is lifting weights, that is running, that is strict diet, that is regular sleep, he says, is of little profit, or as the ESV says, some profit. He acknowledges that this profit is one-dimensional. It is limited to the body. It is limited to time and not to eternity. And to see this in verse 8, one must have been an athlete or to understand something of what it is to be an athlete to really understand this. Uh, I've never been a farmer, and yet I can grasp the the analogies and the metaphors that are used in Scripture regarding what God calls me to do, to sow the good seed, but, but I've never really been a farmer. I can only understand this from afar. Uh, I've never been a shepherd, a, a, a real shepherd with, with sheep and live out on a ranch. But I have been an athlete, and I played football and basketball and baseball and ran track. And I understand what this looks like and, and what this feels like to give oneself to physical discipline. It requires dedication and determination and inner drive. It requires commitment. It requires saying no to a life of ease. It requires curfew at night. And rising early in the morning, it requires restricting your diet and monitoring your sleep. It requires buffeting your body. It requires training when no one else is watching. It requires that you be a self-starter and take self-initiative. It requires that you play when you're hurt. It requires all of this in physical discipline. In, in physical discipline. As we were driving down, my wife and I have been in Chattanooga and Nashville, and we drove down for this conference. And as we were coming down the highway from Memphis to here, I saw the sign on the road that said Greenwood. And I said to my wife, wow, Greenwood, that brings back memories. Uh, I played high school football in Memphis, Tennessee. And our coach set up for us to come down to Greenville for a week of training in August in the hot Mississippi, sweltering, humid climate. We didn't have two-a-days. We had three-a-days. We had three practices every day. And there was no one to wash our jerseys, to put on clean jerseys. We were hanging just sweaty shoulder pads. You would take the ear pads out of your helmet and just squeeze the sweat out of your helmet. Dirty underwear, dirty socks, the whole thing. And all of that because we would be playing football in Memphis and we would give ourselves and make the maximum commitment that we possibly could with our bodies in order to perform at peak uh, performance. Um, I got a football scholarship. I went and played for Texas Tech University out in West Texas. It didn't get any colder in West Texas in August. I would go out there. We had just installed synthetic grass. And I remember putting, they put a thermometer on the goal line one day. The mercury shot up to about 120 and then just broke the glass. We had no idea how hot it really was. 
you'd stand at midfield. You could barely see the goalpost in the other end zone from the heat rising from that surface that was like a, a hot skittle just absorbing the hot Texas weather. And you would go out and you would punish your body and give yourself entirely and completely to a cause. Bodily discipline is of some value. And Paul acknowledges this. And the Ephesians, where, where Timothy is in Ephesus, and they were a sports-crazed society. And their athletes were the, were the icons, the rock stars of, of the day. And to win your race, they would make a marble statue of you, and, and it would line the, the highways leading into the cities. You would be tax-exempt for the rest of your life. You would have free education wherever you would want to go. And as Paul writes this, to Timothy, Timothy understands exactly what Paul is saying. And in the first century, as this began to circulate in other places, they understood all too well what Paul was saying when he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness and the value that there is in bodily discipline. But notice in the middle of verse 8, he now makes the, the parallel or the comparison with what God requires of you and me in the ministry. And he says, but godliness, and when he says but godliness, implied in this godliness is the spiritual discipline to achieve this godliness. But godliness, he says, is profitable. The ESV says of value. It is very profitable. It is much more profitable. It is exceedingly profitable, he says, for all things. And the idea there is in every way. It is profitable now in this life. It is profitable for our own walk with God. It is profitable for our our own conformity to Christ's likeness. It is profitable for our own ministries. It is profitable for our preaching. It is profitable for our our pastoring and our shepherding. It is profitable for our relationship with our spouse. It is profitable for our parenting. It is profitable for our witnessing. It is profitable in every way in which we undertake a spiritual activity. He says, but godliness is profitable for all things since it, and the it refers to spiritual discipline that leads to godliness, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul is very persuasive here with us. He is spelling it out. He is explaining to us why it is that we must discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Physical discipline is profitable for only this lifetime and is profitable only for our bodies. But he is saying that spiritual discipline is profitable for this life as well as for the life to come. That is exactly what he says. For the present life as it brings spiritual depth, as it brings spiritual growth, as it brings a deeper knowledge of God, as it brings a closer walk with God, as it leads to joy and happiness and peace and spiritual power in our ministry, as it leads to the blessing of God upon us, as it leads to effectiveness in ministry... Yes, spiritual discipline holds promise. The word promise means a certainty of gain that will come. It is not in vain that we discipline ourselves for godliness. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This is the comparison made. And I trust that every one of us 
here tonight can clearly clearly see black print on white paper in our Bible that if we will discipline ourselves unto godliness, that there will be the promise of great blessing and grace that will be upon our lives. We bear responsibility in this. Now, notice in verse 9, I want you to see fourth, the confirmation stated. Paul now underscores the certainty of what he just said to Timothy. There must be no question in Timothy's mind regarding the truthfulness of what he has just asserted. He will not let Timothy think around him. And so he says in verse 9, it is a trustworthy statement, Timothy. What I've just said to you, it is a trustworthy statement, and it is deserving your full acceptance. Now, this little phrase, it is a trustworthy statement. That is an often repeated signature statement that is found in the pastoral epistles. And it is synonymous with Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say unto you. Everything that Jesus said was true. Everything that is recorded in the Gospels, coming from the lips of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is inspired, inerrant, and infallible. Yet when he says, truly, truly, he is saying, what I'm about to say rises to a higher level of importance. Not a higher level of inspiration, but a higher level of importance. And some things that Jesus said, quite frankly, are more important and more strategic and more far-reaching than other things that he said. And Jesus would flag the attention of his listeners by blowing a trumpet and saying, Truly, truly, I say unto you, perk up your ears, pay attention, listen to this. Do not let this pass you by. And that is precisely what Paul is doing here in verse 9 when he says, it is a trustworthy statement. And because it is a trustworthy statement, Timothy, you must accept this. In fact, you must give full acceptance of this, not half-hearted acceptance. You must buy in totally and completely to this trustworthy statement. And one question is, what is the it? It is a trustworthy statement. What what is the it? What is the, the confirmation stated? And in the pastoral epistles, sometimes it alludes to what he is about to say in the next verse. Other times in the pastoral epistles, it actually points back to what he just said and serves like taking a yellow highlighter and highlighting what he just said. And in this case, when he says it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, in this case, it is pointing back to what he has just said. Specifically, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That bodily discipline is of some value, but spiritual discipline is of far greater value. This is the trustworthy statement. And I trust that tonight you see in convincing fashion by the words of God that this deserves our full acceptance. I have a fear tonight, though, not for those in this room, but for other brothers who are serving the Lord in other places, that this is no longer a trustworthy statement. That such talk of disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness, finds no place in their view of sanctification. When they hear talk like, you need to have time in the Bible. You need to have time in prayer. You need to be regimented in this. They go, oh no, that's legalism. 
That's, that's legalism. Or don't preach the imperatives to us. Uh, in other words, preaching with imperatives is, is legalism. All you have to do for your sanctification is just look back at your justification. Have you ever heard anyone say that? And it breeds passivity. It breeds the very opposite of what Paul is calling for here. It breeds a sanctification that has left the tracks and is no longer following the mandate here in the Word of God. And they will say things like, well, we are justified by faith alone, so we are sanctified by faith alone. And when they say we're justified by faith alone, they mean that we do nothing. And so then the parallel is brought over to sanctification as though they are able to make this work in their mind from Colossians 2.6, uh, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. But the problem is it shows a superficiality in handling the Word of God. And it stands in total contradiction to what the full counsel of God has to say regarding sanctification. Solomon wrote and said, go observe the ant. Paul writes and says, go observe the athlete. Go into the gym. Watch him lift weights. See him push himself. Observe him perspire with great effort. Hear him grunt. Hear him groan under the heavy weights. Smell his sweat. Note the bulging of his muscles. See the straining of his effort. And there you will learn an important part of what true sanctification is and what it is to grow in godliness. We desperately need to recover what these verses have to bring to the table regarding our own spiritual life. It, it is not to be gained by just being kicked back and cool sitting in Starbucks. You got to get in the gym. You got to get in the Word. You got to get into prayer. And you've got to push yourself by the grace of God. Now, notice fifth in verse 10. The confidence fixed. Paul is so convinced of what he has just stated regarding the necessity for spiritual discipline for the purpose of godliness that he reminds Timothy now that it is for this that he must labor and strive. Notice verse 10. For it is for this, and we ask the question, what is the this? For it is for what? And the context indicates it is for this discipline unto godliness. It is for this, he says, we labor and strive. Nothing kick back and cool here. Nothing passive here. Nothing just glancing back at justification here. No, if we are to discipline ourselves for godliness, it requires, Paul says, that we labor and that we strive. Now, these two words are words that call for great effort. Uh, the word labor, or as the ESV says, toil, means to work hard. Uh, the word literally means to labor and toil to the point of exhaustion, that you have nothing left to give that you have laid it all out on the track and that you have labored in your efforts to the point 
of exhaustion. This calls not for laziness, but for labor. And then he says, and strive. For, this, for it is for this that we labor and strive. These are strong words, my friend. And this word for strive is a Greek word that you're familiar with, agonizomai. The marathon was known as the agony, and we drive the, the, or the agon, and in the English we speak of agony. It means to struggle. It means to, to agonize as one would in an athletic contest. Please, it doesn't say it is for this that we sit, but that we strive. Now, we need to understand this about sanctification. Regeneration is monergistic. We understand what monergism means, that the sinner is spiritually dead and trespasses in sin, that there is absolutely nothing that the dead sinner can do, that there is only one active agent, capital A, involved in our new birth, and that it was the sovereign, effectual call of God, the Holy Spirit, who called us by name just as Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus was resurrected. Lazarus had nothing to do with that. And it's been well said, if he had just said, come forth, the entire graveyard would have come forth. Lazarus, come forth. That is a picture of monergistic regeneration. But sanctification is not monergistic. Sanctification is synergistic. And a couple of years ago, I had the privilege to sit down with R.C. Sproul and to give careful and serious thought to this. And he is the one who brought to my attention, Steve, regeneration is monergistic sanctification is synergistic. There are two agents involved in our growth in grace. There is the inward ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and apart from Him, there is no sanctification. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing of any spiritual lasting value. We could never do it on our own. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory that brings about our sanctification. It is God the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer is at work within us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. But in sanctification, it is never monergistic. It is synergistic. For we are no longer dead in trespasses and sin. We have been given a new heart. We have been given eyes to see and ears to hear. The Word of God has been written upon our hearts. He has put His Holy Spirit within us and causes us to walk in its statutes. And we now have been given the supernatural ability by the indwelling Holy Spirit, but it requires our obedience. It requires our stepping out and doing that which God would have us to do in study of the Word, internalizing the Scripture, in, in prayer, and in all of these ways. So that is why Paul says to Timothy, for it is for this we labor and strive. And just a footnote, by the way, labor and strive are in the present tense, as we are to be continually laboring and constantly striving as we give ourselves in this pursuit of godliness. Now, notice what he goes on to say in verse 10. Because we have fixed our hope on the living God. I understand that when we read verses like this, sometimes there are those of us who become discouraged. We have set the bar way too high. 
Well, let me first of all say, we're not dropping the bar one half inch from where God has placed the bar. This is where God has placed it. And it is only by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that He enables us to do that which He calls us to do. And as we fix our hope on the living God, God, by His inward presence, energizes us to labor and to strive. Uh, This word hope means to look to the future. It, It is a steadfast, confident assurance about the future. What hope does is look to the end of the race. While we are in the race of faith, and while we are running the race that God has set before us, and while we are buffeting our body and making it our slave, while we are laboring, and while we are striving... Hope looks to the finish line, and hope looks to the Lord Jesus Christ who is waiting at the finish line, and hope looks to the crown and to the reward that He has for us. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to every man according to his work. And as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, He becomes not only the author, but the perfecter of our faith. And He grants to us the supernatural power to persevere and to endure and to keep on keeping on as we run the race that God has set before us. In reality, not only is Christ at the finish line, Christ is in us and Christ is enabling us and He is empowering us And He is energizing us, yet nevertheless, we must run the race. And nevertheless, we must run the race of faith. But as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ and fix our gaze upon Him, He, by His Spirit, supernaturally grants, multiplies, and enlarges His grace within us. Think of it this way. Back when I used to play college football, we would start as soon as January. We came back to class for January. Kickoff wouldn't be until the first or second week in September. We would go into the gym in January. We would... We would, we would literally all but kill ourselves. Uh, the coaches knew we had six months to get well, seven months to get well. They, 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 it, it, was, it was extraordinary, lifting weights, running the stadium stairs, running around the track, wind sprints, all kinds of drills. What would motivate us and keep us moving was... September's coming. Kickoff is coming. The stadium is going to be packed, and we will continue to give ourselves in a sacrificial manner. Then when March comes, and it's time for spring training, and we just line up against each other, and we just run at each other, and and hit each other, and tackle each other, and, and all but kill each other. What, what would keep us going? What would motivate us? It was looking to the future, knowing the schedule has already been posted in the, in the locker room. We know exactly. We're going down to New Orleans, and we're, we're starting the season in the Sugar Bowl, and we're going to be playing against Tulane. Let us keep on keeping on in this. It would inspire. It would motivate. That is something of what Paul is saying when he says... Because we have fixed our hope on the living God. Infinitely greater than looking ahead to a football season. It's for you and me to lift up our... Set our mind on things above and not on things of the earth. And look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And look to the future and the certainty of that day. When we will stand before Christ. And the books will be open. 
and our entire life will pass before. None of our sins will be exposed. But as a servant before His Master, so we will be evaluated according to our faithfulness with what He has entrusted to us. And it is this great day when we will be with the Lord and stand before Him, and we long to hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant, that we draw strength, and we endure, and we press on in the midst of difficult ministry circumstances, and even in the midst of the challenges we face. That is what Paul is saying. One day, Paul knows that Timothy will stand before the Lord and give an account for his ministry. James 3.1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing what? That we shall incur a stricter judgment. I mean, there is an accountability that we will have to our Master and how we must discipline ourselves now. It is this confident look to the future in hope that puts new strength in Timothy's spiritual legs. It puts new air in Timothy's lungs. It puts new energy in Timothy's stride. It is this fixed hope that causes Timothy to widen his stride and to pick up his pace and to pump his knees as he finds himself in a very difficult ministry situation. He concludes verse 10 by saying, This living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Obviously, various ways to interpret this, and even within Reformed circles, I would take the all to refer to all kinds of men, all without distinction, as opposed to all without exception. And the word especially, melista, to be, to mean, in other words, that is to say, or to be more precise, the living God who is the Savior of all kinds of men, specifically of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, finally, I want you to see the charge reissued. In verse 11, Paul does not back off. Paul now tightens the screws even tighter. And Paul now says to Timothy, prescribe or command and teach these things. He says to Timothy, not only is this for you, Timothy, but Timothy, I want you to teach this to all others. In fact, Timothy, I want you to command all others that they must discipline themselves for the purpose of godliness. Now, this word prescribed is a very strong word. It is a Greek word that means to charge, to declare, to give orders. It's in the present tense. Timothy, you need to be always prescribing and commanding this. It's in the active voice. Timothy, you need to take action. It's in the imperative mood. Timothy, I command you to command others and to teach, to clarify, to specify, to give didactic instruction concerning these things. Prescribe and teach these things. What are these things? It's everything he's been talking about. It's about being a good servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now, Timothy, this is not only for you. Timothy, this is for everyone in your ministry. Not only am I commanding you, Timothy, but I'm also commanding you to command others this, that if your flock, your church, is to grow in personal holiness, then they too must discipline themselves. 
Now, why did Paul need to tell Timothy this? And the answer is, Timothy was timid. He was shy. He was reticent. Most probably because he was a younger man. And what Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, you need to speak up about this. Timothy, you need to speak out on this. Timothy, you need to stop being slow to speak about this. Timothy, you need to prescribe this. You need to command this. You need to teach this. And then he says in verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness. It was holding Timothy back from bringing the full disclosure of the truth of God to his flock. When he says, let no one, that is a very emphatic statement. Let, let no one, regardless of how old they are, regardless of how long they've been in this church, regardless of whatever famous pastors they had before you arrived, Timothy, you let no one look down. And this word, look down, the ESV says, let no one despise you. Let no one think little of you. Let no one say, well, who is this young kid telling us how to live? Timothy, you're going to have to man up. And you're going to have to speak the very words of God. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. The old guard in the church at Ephesus were looking down on Timothy's youthfulness, and they were despising him. Timothy was fine in their eyes as long as he was in an assistant role to Paul. But now that Paul is no longer there, and Timothy has been elevated to be the lead teaching elder, it is with that promotion that the long-standing members there in Ephesus began to withhold their respect for Timothy and began to turn a deaf ear to Timothy, and it was causing Timothy to water down his message, to hold back what needed to be say to be said in order to only go so far as to have their acceptance. That is why Paul says, Timothy, that's just not even an option for you. You're not in a popularity contest with the old guard in the church at Ephesus. Timothy, I charge you to command and to teach these things. And you let no one look down on your youthfulness. He says, but rather show yourself an example. How will Timothy overcome this challenge to his pastoral leadership due to his youthfulness? The answer lies in, in, in here in verse 12. It will be by Timothy's distinctly godly life that he will provide and apologetic for what he is teaching and what he is preaching. In other words, Timothy will model the message, but rather show yourself an example of or to those who believe. And he now gives five areas in Timothy's life in which it is necessary that Timothy set the example for the old guard there in the church at Ephesus... And all five of these are absolutely mandatory. This is not an, uh, a multiple choice where Timothy can pick and choose which one of these he wants to see lived out. This is a comprehensive sanctification. This is what Robert Murray McShane referred to as universal holiness. He said, study universal holiness. And by that, he meant an across-the-board holiness... Hey, hey, an A to Z holiness from the inside out. And Timothy, it will be your spiritual life that will be the platform from which you will stand and speak and provide spiritual leadership to the church. And in these five areas, they are number one in speech. This is first because preaching elders so use their mouth. They are being asked to give counsel. They are being told 
matters of confidentiality. They are required to weigh in on different situations that come up in the church. They are those who are continually using their mouth. They are the object of harsh criticism. They are the target of negative resistance. And one slip of the tongue can leave a hurtful impression upon someone in the church. One misuse of the mouth can cause others to stumble. One misuse of humor can have a crushing effect upon another's sensitivity. One repeating of gossip can ruin another's reputation. One unwholesome word can wrongly influence others to adopt the same practice. Timothy, you must be an example to the flock of believers in Ephesus in your speech. And what a challenge that is for a young man to rein in his humor to rein in the use of his mouth, but to use it in ways that are edifying and encouraging and building up, to use his mouth in ways that are redemptive and sanctifying of others. And so it is for us. Many a man's ministry has been sacrificed because of his mouth. Many a time as a young man, I had to stand in the pulpit on Sunday morning and repent of how I used my mouth the previous week and come under such deep conviction during the week that because my sin took place publicly in the pulpit, that my confession of sin and repentance needed to be made known in the very same arena. You must be an example of what one's mouth should be. And not only in the pulpit, even out of the pulpit, in our conversations after the service and before and after the week, and before the service and during the week. Second, in conduct referring to behavior, the manner of his life, how he sets the course, the choices he makes, the steps he takes, in love, referring to unconditional, agape love, sacrificial love. And it is often loving those who are the hardest to love, loving those who in your eyes may be the most unlovely to nevertheless show unconditional love to those who are in your charge. And in faith, he says, you're you're trusting God, your reliance upon God, your confidence in God. Most probably this refers to his faithfulness to the Lord and to the Lord's work. And then in purity, referring to his moral cleanness his blameless living, his conformity to God's moral law, his purity of thoughts, of mind, of motives, of conscience, of ambition, of actions, of body. Certainly not sinless, but blameless. This is the comprehensive approach to sanctification that Paul requires of Timothy, and of you and me. It necessitates our resolve to pursue this kind of discipline. One minister who sought to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness was a colonial Puritan of the 18th century, the venerable Jonathan Edwards. At ages 18 and 19, Edwards assumed the the interim pastorate of a Presbyterian church in Manhattan on what is today Wall Street. And as he came to pastor this flock, he realized that the purity of his own life would be the foundation of his own ministry. 
And so Jonathan Edwards wrote 70 resolutions that would serve as a moral compass for his life, that would be restatements of Scripture that he would review on a regular basis to audit and to monitor his own spiritual life. On January the 14th, 1723, Jonathan Edwards, age 19, wrote this resolution. It is number 63. It is an astonishing resolution. On the supposition that there was never to be but one individual in the world at any one time who was properly a complete Christian, Jonathan Edwards reasoned there has to be only one Christian who is the most complete Christian on planet earth in this generation. And Jonathan Edwards said, I want to be that Christian. Someone would say, wow, that's arrogant. So you want to be the worst Christian in your generation? That is a false spirituality. That is a a pseudo-spirituality. No, Jonathan Edwards said, I want to be the one Christian in my generation who is most like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he wrote, resolved. Where are Christians today who speak like this? Resolved to act just as I would do if I strove with all my might to be that one who should so live in my time. That is just a restatement of what Paul is saying, that we labor and strive. Edwards says that I will strive with all of my might to be the greatest Christian in this generation. Two days before, I found this in Edwards' diary. My wife has taken this, copied it, framed it, given it to all four of our children. It hangs in my study. It needs to hang in your heart. Edwards writes this on January the 12th, 1723. I have been before God and have given myself all that I am and all that I have to God so that I am not in any respect my own. I can challenge no right to this understanding, this will, these affections which are in me. Neither have I any right to this body or to its members. I have no right to this tongue, these hands, these feet. I have no right to these senses, these eyes, these ears, this smell, or this taste. I have given myself clear away and have not retained anything as my own. I have been this morning to God and told Him I have given myself wholly to Him. I have this morning told Him that I did take Him as my whole portion looking on nothing else as any other of, ha- of my happiness, nor acting as if it were. And His law is my constant rule for my obedience. And I will fight with all my might against the world, the flesh, and the devil to the end of my life. And that I did believe in Jesus Christ and did receive Him as Savior and, and Prince and that I would adhere to the faith and obedience of the gospel, however hazardous and difficult the confession and practice of it may be. Now, henceforth, I am not to act in any respect as my own. I want to ask you, Is there a resolve in your spiritual life? Is there a resolution to be the most like the Lord Jesus Christ that by His grace you can possibly be? 
I want to ask you, have you been before God this morning? And have you given yourself to Him completely? Have you told God that you have no right to anything in your own life? Have you given to God your tongue? Have you given Him your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, your obedience? I want to ask you, will you live in obedience to what Paul has charged Timothy with? Will you discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness? And will you labor and will you strive to reach forward for the fullness of the experience of Christ in your life? If you find yourself here tonight and perhaps overwhelmed by such talk as this, I point you away from Jonathan Edwards. I point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look unto Christ. Draw strength from Christ. And as you look to Christ, be reminded that He disciplined Himself. He rose up early and was with the Father in prayer. And in Mark 1, when they came looking for Christ, they couldn't find Him. But then they knew exactly where He would be. Because that's where He always was, was with the Father in prayer. And He disciplined Himself in the Word of God. And you throw Him out in the wilderness. And He is bombarded with temptation. And He has no Logos software. He has, he has no concordance. But he can say, it is written, Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. It is written, Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. And he can quote Scripture because he has memorized it within his humanity. And he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. And it says when his disciples were traveling with him for the Passion Week in Jerusalem after he left Jericho, they couldn't even keep up with him. Because he had set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. He was resolved. And he was purposed to give himself completely to the Father and to the Father's will. May we here tonight take to heart these words from the Apostle Paul written to Timothy. These are strong words, but we will not neuter the Word of God. These are hard sayings, but there is a high call upon our lives and how we must discipline ourselves in order to be an awful weapon in the hand of God. May God raise up from this room here tonight. Those men in this generation who will strike terror in the kingdom of darkness. That your stand for Christ will be so strong. That your resemblance of Christ will be so clear. That your resolution and resolve to Christ will be so unwavering that you will stand out as stars on a dark night in this hour and in this day in which we live. Now is the time for the strongest men to preach the strongest message in the context of the strongest ministries and churches. Will you be one of those strong men in this generation? Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray that these inspired words from 1 Timothy 4 will so ring in our heart that we will be challenged to pick up our pace 
to widen our stride, to pick up the pace with which we are running. I pray that you will challenge us to be in the Word, to be in prayer even more. I pray that you will make us strong in the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that it is in our weakness your strength will be made perfect in such earthen vessels as we are. Father, make us like Paul and make us like the man whom Timothy was to become. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.